Welcome to Dictatorum, episode 1.5, Gaddafi's dream comes true. Kind of. Last time on Dictatorum, we saw how after the 1 September revolution, Gaddafi went about righting the wrongs of the king's regime, building houses, kicking out the Americans, and ultimately taking full control of the Revolutionary Command Council for himself. When it came time for him to resign, instead of, you know, riding off into the sunset, Gaddafi announced his grand plan, the creation of the Libyan Arab people's Jamaharia. Not only was the old regime being swept away, but everything Libya had ever known in the form of government was about to get tossed out the window, and Gaddafi was at the head of it all. After Gaddafi came to power, Libya of course started its new trajectory under him, and boy was it different than the monarchy. As we previously said, the oil industry in Libya was the moneymaker in the country, and Gaddafi made every attempt to keep his cash cow in tip-top shape. Newly negotiated contracts with international oil companies gave Libya the lion's share of revenues for the first time in its history. Libyan oil industry personnel would still receive training outside of Libya, and foreigners were still employed in Libya's oil fields, but Gaddafi now had the controlling hand in all of it. Other Arab nations would soon follow this example, and starting in the 1970s, Arab oil-producing nations would start taking control of their own national oil industries. Gaddafi also made strides to improve Libya's appalling medical and educational institutions, ending up with free health care and education for all. This falls right in line with his socialist philosophy. But let's not kid ourselves and think that these were well run. Literacy rose from below 25% in 1969 to close to 90% in just a few short years, which brought Libya in line with lots of developed nations and statistically much higher than most of Africa. But higher education in Libya did, and to this day still does, rank pretty low in comparison with the education in the developed world. According to the Borgen Project, a U.S.-based nonprofit organization, primary school was used as a propaganda tool for the Gaddafi regime, which used skewed maps and didn't use some internationally recognized symbols, such as those for the kilogram, the centimeter, and others. This was apparently due to Gaddafi's disdain for Western colonialism. I mean, God forbid, the kilogram, man, that was really oppressing the Libyans. Healthcare, as we said, was universal and free for all citizens, but just like most things in the Gaddafi government, it wasn't well run and suffered from frequent shortages. Hospitals and clinics were supported by foreign medical professionals and training from abroad, just like the oil industry. This was an improvement over the horrible healthcare system of the King Idris, but healthcare under the monarchy was basically non-existent making any kind of healthcare available to a majority of Libyans is therefore automatically an improvement. If you'll recall, Gaddafi himself was born in a tent in the desert. No word on whether or not a doctor was around. Although it was already trending upwards, average life expectancy climbed significantly in Libya starting in the 1970s. In regard to finances, the Gaddafi regime did pretty well for itself sometimes, and at other times abysmally bad. Some sources state that there was no external debt in Libya under the Gaddafi regime, and that would be a huge accomplishment for a country which was the poorest in the world just half a generation earlier. Unfortunately for Libya and the Libyan people, that's not correct. According to numbers from the International Monetary Fund, the earliest available data for Libya is from 1973, where Libya's debt was 6.35% of gross domestic product, or GDP. This number rose throughout the 1970s and 80s, reaching a high of 73.48% in 1990, 
before falling to a low of just under 2% in 2007. That's an incredible swing in debt percentages, and those numbers are representative of Gaddafi's world standing at different points throughout his reign. When Gaddafi wasn't considered a pariah leader, the Libyan national debt was low. To contrast, however, the United States national debt has steadily risen for the same period, from 32% of GDP in 1973 to more than 105% of GDP in 2015. So, comparatively speaking, Libya had a pretty modest level of debt under Gaddafi. Together with GDP growth, average salaries rose as well. At independence, the average Libyan made just $35 a year. By the early 1970s, Libyans had some of the highest wages in the Middle East. The Gaddafi government also took steps to increase home ownership, with housing construction seeing large increases in the 1970s, and there was a surplus in housing from 1973 to 1981. Newly married couples could receive a stipend towards the purchase of a new house, and low or 0% interest loans for a house or apartment. These measures largely eliminated the housing shortages and shanty towns seen all over Libya in the 1960s. But now look, let's look at the flip side. The Gaddafi regime forbade the leasing of property for profit. So in effect, property owners were forced to choose the property they were going to live in and then sell any remaining property they had, regardless of how they acquired the additional property. Gaddafi had promised to give the Libyan people a form of socialism that would fit their unique culture and experience. Decisions would now be made by the people, for the people. And I don't mean with elected representatives. I mean huge committees of people would meet to make all kinds of decisions. Town, city, and regional level decision making was now handled by these quote-unquote socialist committees, which the average Libyan was of course obligated to go to. This was how Gaddafi envisioned ordinary citizens taking part in the governance of his country. Of course it was doomed to failure. Ordinary citizens don't know how to keep the power on, to keep the water running, or how to keep the trash trucks in operation. It was soon clear that these committees were a farce, and that all the real power rested with Gaddafi himself. Attendance soon dropped, and an already sluggish administration got even slower, and even more inept. For his part, Gaddafi promulgated his form of Arab socialism via a three-volume tome called The Green Book. Now, you might have heard about the Green Book, but for those of you who haven't, know that it became the holy book of the Libyan Revolution. In it, the colonel laid out his third universal theory, which was supposed to be an alternate path between the first and second universal theories, capitalism and communism. In all actuality, the Green Book is kind of a jumbled mess and doesn't present coherent arguments at all. It was supposed to be similar to Das Kapital, Karl Marx's criticism of the capitalist system, which lays out problems and proposed solutions. Instead, it ended up being really similar to Mao Zedong's Little Red Book, which is a book of sayings by China's first communist leader. Academics and politicians alike criticize the Green Book because it doesn't give a clear direction and because it really just tries to find a way for Gaddafi to do whatever he wants in the name of Arab socialism. But, because it was penned by Gaddafi himself, it became mandatory in all schools, and copies of it were passed out to tourists as gifts. Gaddafi was also making changes to Libyan foreign policy, and began using Libya's oil well to support these goals. On October 6, 1973, Egypt and Syria simultaneously attacked Israel during the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. 
Their goal was to retake territory in the Sinai Peninsula and in the Golan Heights. Both of these territories were lost during the Six-Day War in 1967. Remember that war that Gaddafi never got to fight in? The fighting was intense and all sides took heavy casualties. In response, the United States and the Soviet Union rushed massive amounts of lethal military aid to their respective allies. The U.S. sent aid to Israel, starting in the form of a massive airlift of military supplies on October 12th, which would reach a total cost of $2.2 billion. Gaddafi's response to U.S. support for Israel was to unilaterally declare an embargo against oil exports to the United States. The next day, several other Arab nations followed suit by raising prices and cutting production. Between October 1973 and March 1974, the U.S. and several of its allies, including Canada, the United Kingdom, Netherlands, Japan, Rhodesia, Portugal, and South Africa, all suffered shortages and huge price increases for foreign oil. The price of oil increased nearly 400% in this period, and American automobile owners were subject to long lines at the pump, high prices, and closed gas stations. The U.S. even considered gas rationing in early 1974, before the embargo ended. Widely viewed as a failure in the long term, the oil embargo was Gaddafi's first use of oil as a weapon. Another Libyan-sponsored embargo in 1979 ended up with OPEC, which largely consisted of Arab states, losing influence and market share, consequences which are still felt today. The wins on the social front for the Gaddafi regime did not mean that Libya was free from internal conflict. Let's not forget there were loads of newly educated people in Libya in the 1970s, and they started to flex their muscles almost immediately. On the 7th of April 1976, some of these students gathered in protests at universities in Tripoli and Benghazi. They wanted to return to civilian rule and democratic elections. The demonstrations were broken up by pro-regime counter-protesters. By the end of the day, many of the Ana Gaddafi students had been arrested for protesting against the brother leader. Some of them were released in short order, only to be re-arrested later. Others would never be set free again. One year later, on the 7th of April 1977, some of those protesters were brutally hung in a square in Benghazi. Some army officers were also killed in their barracks for being anti-regime, sometimes with their friends and family being forced to watch, or even worse, taking part. This cycle would repeat itself every year on the 7th of April until at least the late 1980s. Numbers aren't readily available for how many people lost their lives this way, but this is where Gaddafi's brutal side really starts to show itself. One academic stated that, It has not been the practice of the regime since the late 80s to celebrate April 7th with public executions, at least not publicly. The regime does, however, use the opportunity on this day to remove what it considers as quote-unquote non-revolutionary elements from educational institutions. It does still execute individuals it considers to be a threat, but it does that at any time and doesn't wait until April 7th. Gaddafi's near bloodless revolution had just taken a very bloody turn, and would continue along this bloody path for the rest of the leader's reign. Starting almost immediately after the 1 September coup, Gaddafi started to support, fund, and train revolutionary terrorist groups from around the world. As already mentioned, Gaddafi was vehemently anti-Israel and thus supported groups like the Palestinian Liberation Organization, most commonly known as the PLO. When relations with the PLO's leader Nasser Arafat went south, 
Gaddafi started supporting other anti-Israeli groups, such as the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine General Command, the Popular Struggle Front, and the Abu Nadal Organization. But his support reached much further than the shores of Israel and Palestine. Gaddafi supported Black September, the group behind the 1972 Munich Olympics massacre. He supported the Basque separatist group ETA, the Red Brigade in Italy, and the Irish Republican Army. Gaddafi even supported the Armenian Secret Army for the liberation of Armenia against his fellow Muslims in Turkey. Gaddafi's regime provided arms and monies to the Moro National Liberation Front, a Muslim rebel group based in the southern Philippines. Gaddafi's reach extended even into the Americas. His government provided money and training to the Sadanistas in Nicaragua, who were famous for their role in the Iran-Contra affair during the Reagan administration. He gave money to terrorist and revolutionary groups in Colombia, Guatemala, El Salvador, and even the tiny island of St. Lucia. The 1970s saw Gaddafi put all that oil money into supporting all these groups with no clear aim except maybe to harass non-Muslim, Western-style democracies. There wasn't even really any consistency with whom Gaddafi would support. From Muslims in Palestine to Irish Catholics, from religious movements to anti-religious Marxist movements, Gaddafi supported any number of causes, if only to nag the West. In the case of the Irish Republican Army, Gaddafi's support was specifically aimed to harm Britain. Gaddafi felt that Britain had crippled his country, and indeed most of the world, with the colonial occupations of the 19th and 20th centuries. By supporting Irish rebels, he could have hurt Britain without firing a shot himself, which would have inevitably ended up with British military action against Libya. Starting in 1972, IRA leaders began receiving weapons and money from Libya. IRA revolutionaries were sent to Libya to get training in combat and bomb making. Soon, more than $3.5 million in Libyan money had made its way into IRA bank accounts. It wasn't all good between the two sides, though. In 1973, a ship carrying arms from Libya for the IRA was intercepted by the British Navy. After this incident, relations between the IRA and Libya cooled considerably, but the Libyan touch would be felt for years. A British lord and several friends and family members were killed on his yacht in 1979. The bomber, Thomas McMahon, had gotten his training in Libya. The Libyan connection with the IRA eventually led to the British largely staying out of business in Libya until rapprochement after 9-11. Not only did Gaddafi support groups who were hostile to the West, but he also supported groups and movements to overthrow fellow Arab leaders all over the Arab world. He routinely broadcasted diatribes against the monarchical states of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Morocco. Gaddafi's beef with Morocco is because of the Western Sahara independence movement. Western Sahara is a region in the south of Morocco that was a Spanish colony until 1975. It's claimed by Morocco but there's still a militant independence movement backed by Algeria called the Polisario Front, who wants to forge their own state. Because Algeria was Libya's best ally after Egypt pulled away from Gaddafi in the early 1970s, Gaddafi often found himself cooperating with Algeria in the 1970s and 80s, which included funding the Polisario to destabilize Morocco. Furthermore, Morocco was a longtime ally of the United States, and Gaddafi couldn't pass up an opportunity to irk an American ally. 
In the case of Saudi Arabia and Jordan, Gaddafi was rumored to have been involved with both the bombing of the Saudi embassy in Sudan, as well as with a failed coup starting from the Saudi Air Force. Gaddafi riled the Jordanians at every opportunity and funded groups that troubled the Jordanians, like the PLO. What's crazy about all of this is that Gaddafi sought unity with most of these nations at one time or another. We already talked about the brief union with Egypt and Syria, but Gaddafi also sought to unite with Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Sudan. By the end of the 1970s, all of these pushes for unity ended up in shambles, however. The decade after Gaddafi took over Libya was full of revolutionary change. Advances in the social front were accompanied by a continued political repression. A desire for greater independence from the West ended up with Libyan support to groups openly hostile to Western-style governments the world over. The use of oil as a weapon in the 1970s was just the beginning of Libya's march to becoming a pariah state. Join me next time as we enter Gaddafi's second decade in power. The 1980s would see Libya's fortunes plunge in the wake of his reckless support to terrorist groups, the murder of a British police constable, and the Lockerbie bombing.